At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. And I'm joined today by our co-host, Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, how are you on this fine December day? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Brazil lost. Yeah, yeah. Last week, uh, yeah, Brazil Brazil went down, so that's a big thing in my household. Yeah. It's a big big deal. Everyone was really sad. I actually felt bad for them. I don't necessarily don't always feel bad because they're so good at uh, yeah. at soccer. <laughs> yeah, but I actually right. felt bad this time. That was a, that was a rough one. So um, I was asked. I was wondering how it's holiday season. We're barely like right. Like I looked up today and we're, we're moving through December it. pretty fast. Or what? Right. Are you stressed? Do you get stressed this time of year? Yeah, I am. There's a lot of things that are due in the next few weeks right yeah. and so it's like it's crunch time so yeah, i feel a little overwhelmed and um <laughs> with projects and school stuff um but what's really cool is i'll have that week between december and new year uh, christmas and new year's off like not off but it'll be really quiet what about you okay so you go hard and then you'll have a week off yeah the the trick is just not acknowledging that it's happening right all the things that i have that we have going on right you just kind of right you just ignore it, I think, and you just go you as hard as you can, it. and then you just collapse at a certain point. It's so true. That's my plan. If you need anything, you let me know, right? We're here for Thanks each now. other. Totally. Same. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Awesome. You ready for the deets? Do you want me to go? I'll go first here. So um, yeah, let's talk our about story it. number one, CEO of Bank of America. I don't know if you uh, do your business there, but... Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan um, said instead of laying off workers, he'll allow some positions to go unfilled Mm -hmm. um, as employees voluntarily leave the company. So Bank of America is one of the biggest banks in the U.S., one of um, Charlotte, North Carolina's biggest employers, and it's preparing to trim its workforce just like every other kind of organization kind of across the board in efforts to reduce expenses over, you know, fears of of the recession. Mm-hmm. Um, so Moynihan said that instead of laying off its workers, he'd rather let organic attrition occur while at the same time, not filling those positions. He's also said that he wants to, he wants the organization to reshape its staff by moving people around and training them for new roles. Okay. What are your thoughts on this? So I interested to hear your thoughts. This is good to me. I, <laughs> I hear, I see a lot of good stuff here. Uh, yeah. It's smart. B of A. It has about two hundred five to two hundred fifteen thousand 
employees and what yeah big company uh brian moynihan's saying is that number bounces between those two numbers pretty regularly just because they're hiring so many people and they're losing so many people all the time uh so this is what exactly what companies like this should be doing and how they should be thinking managing their workforces without having to lay people off so it's it is ridiculous for a financial services firm something that's really big a big company with top line growth of like three to five percent to not be able to manage their workforce and have to lay a bunch of people off. So I have a lot more sympathy for tech companies who are getting you know a lot of cash thrown at them, trying to attain some sort of escape velocity. And so therefore they're trying to grow really fast. So they hire a lot of people. And then when the money turns off, then they have to lay people off. It's not great, but it's at least defensible and understandable. But I just, I always think about the immorality and the laziness of mm. financial services firms or big insurance companies that are slow growing, but in good times, they hire way too many people. And as soon as there's a downturn, that they lay off thousands of workers, right? So, yeah, and this, sure. this cycle really repeats every two to four years. So I've tried to get traction for this idea that if you have a big layoff in a slow growing firm, that that's a failure of leadership, right? And that the CEO needs to be held accountable by the board. No one really buys that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, um, right. Because there's right, very right. little independence in, in in corporate boardrooms all over the the world, really. So, um, yeah. I think it's a great thing. I really like the way he laid it out. We'll see if he's able to stick to that as as things get a little bit tougher. Totally. I mean, we've certainly talked about this in the last few episodes. I personally love the moving, the shaking around, um, the cross skilling. The mm. I think it's so vital to the company and the growth. Not only for the company, but also also considering the employee and their personal career and development goals. So mm -hmm. I think taking that into consideration, all really good things. And then, like you said, it has to come from the leadership. And so love the message from the top so that human resources, employee relations, people, managers can align to that vision and that expectation. And also it's just really comfort comforting, I'm sure, for employees and consumers, like customers, to know that Bank of America is really doing everything that it can to retain its employees and not have to be kind of devastated by um, economic circumstances. So that's a, that's a great really point. great example. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. I was just thinking as you were speaking that it's not our first downturn. We've been through this a few times, it, it, certainly in my mm -hmm. working life. And so if you're a big company, you don't have a reskilling internal mobility program, if you haven't sure. done serious workforce planning at this point, like, what are you doing? What are you like doing? Said, a, what are complete, you spending your time on, people? <laughs> it's a complete failure of leadership. So it, so yeah. I think, you know, they're a pretty well-managed company and uh, was happy to, to see that that article. Absolutely. Um, do you have we, a story for me? I do. I do. Mine's okay. less serious, though. Well, I mean, oh, I, I okay. guess I shouldn't say that. It's more, okay. it's... It involves sharks, right? And so, uh, yeah, this week uh, there was an article in the Washington Post. Shark researcher Lisa Whiteneck of Allegheny College in Pennsylvania examined hundreds of Shark Week episodes. You know, the Shark Week on the on the Discovery Channel. Totally. From yep. 1988 to, 2020, to 2020 and found that the series overwhelmingly represented white males as experts. Over the course of the episode, she found that more men named Mike were featured as shark experts than women. And so do, do you watch Mike. Shark Week? Okay. I don't, yes. you know, I've seen it probably in the past, like maybe one or two episodes, like I would say six years ago. I know a lot of people who like are really big watchers of this 
of of they build the week. a week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they build a week around they, it. They buy all the 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 products and they buy a shark lots week of products. shark stuff. Yeah, totally. I mean, I I like this story because I thought the the framing of it was really well done. So t- when we're thinking about overrepresentation, there's been a lot of pushback, or I've seen a lot of pushback about the term representation and, and over and under representation in some sure. corners, which I'm going to talk about later when I rant. Um, okay. <laughs> but I I like this as an example of something that's hard to argue with, right? So men named Mike are overrepresented in this example statistically, right? Unless okay, we believe right. that there's something inherently great about men named Mike, which mm. I don't know. I'll let you. I'll pause to let you defend men named Mike. I mean, Muhammad is the most common name in the globe, so I don't know why they don't have a lot of Muhammad. <laughs> I know here, that. Okay. There's no one named Muhammad. I'll let you. I'll, I'll let you on that uh, that secret, but. You know, you have to at least think about how this field is being portrayed based on the research that, they, that they've laid out. The field right. is more than half women. And over the 229 episodes, 90% of the experts were white, 78% were men. So I think it's just a great example. I think I'm going to use it in, when, I, when I make a point of what, over, what it really looks like, what overrepresentation looks like as I go out and, and, and work with people. First, I love that someone conducted this study on Shark Week. I think that's so interesting. And... I'm just so curious who they find the sharks that were the sharks all male as well. <laughs> but that was my joke. Um, no, but for real, this is a great example. I didn't go into depth with the study. I'm I'm basically hearing what you're saying. And so like if the findings indicate all of those things, I think this is just an interesting example of how TV or media perpetuates and promotes a certain mindset or way to think unconsciously. Um, about things and then mm-hmm. how they actually play a critical role, like media, the institution plays a really critical role in dismantling bias and anti-racism and gender bias, right? So yep. diversity, we know this diversity in people brings diversity in thought. It's like a really fairly simple equation. And so I thought it was a really great call out, great study. I, again, didn't go in depth with the study, but I appreciate the information and the findings. Awesome. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by media entrepreneur Mika Cooper Edwards. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. This week, we're very excited as we are joined by Mika Cooper Edwards. Mika is the founder and CEO of Salel Space Inc., a transcultural media company specializing in film and television production elevating stories and creators of the global South diasporas of Asia, Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America, and the Middle East. Mika is a media entrepreneur with a vision to unite and empower the world's diverse diasporas through the connective and enlightening power of media. She has led marketing efforts and worked with the top iconic global brands such as Nike, Jordan Brand, PepsiCo, Diageo, and Moe Hennessy. I've heard of a few of those. Mika is a proud donor of Chittabad and Tobago, an alumna of Howard University and the London School of Economics, and was recently named to the Forbes Next 1000 and a steam list of upstart entrepreneurs redefining the American dream. Mika Cooper-Edwards, so happy that you could join us today. Thanks for being with us on Inclusive Collective. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. So good to have you. It's such an honor, Mika. Um, so at Salil, you are interested in elevating the stories of creators from the global south. What did you see as a producer or working for production companies that made you say, I need to start something to address what I have 
experienced or see as a, a problem? Yeah, um, I'll back up a little bit just to give some context because how how we came to this point was a bit of a journey. I'm an outsider to the film and TV industry, right? Some people don't think that. I still feel like I am even six, seven years in. And that's because, as you said, most of my career, my early career was spent um, on the consumer marketing, uh, corporate marketing side of things, right? My desire to be a producer was something that was started out as just a normal person who loved film and TV, who loved storytelling, got tired of doing commercial storytelling and wanted to tell a lot deeper stories. But it was because I had seen the gaps on the commercial storytelling side that I yearned to tell the stories on a deeper level. And I was, I, it was almost as though I was connecting the dots between, you know, that systemic underrepresentation in the corporate, you know, commercial world and then also seeing it in film and TV and just getting more and more obsessed with it. And so I decided to go study the industry. So my career switch into film and TV was first as a student. I wanted to look at it systemically. I wanted to study it theoretically and mm. understand what were like the fundamental things that led to where we are. And what that did is it made me stumble into film industries in other parts of the world outside of Hollywood. Because even though I grew up in Trinidad in the Caribbean, most of the films and, and TV series that we ingested was still either American, mm -hmm. then to a much lesser extent, British or Australian soap operas, mm -hmm. right? Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, so I always was like, where is our like documentary on, you know, the iconic prime ministers of the Caribbean? Or where is the story of a girl like me growing up in the Caribbean and moving to the U.S.? Like, where, where are those? But on a premium level, not a cheap YouTube, you right. know, video, right? right. <laughs> and so to answer your question, studying the industry, understanding Nollywood, which is a Nigerian film industry, how that had evolved, Bollywood, Turkish film, all these different industries of film and TV, but as people of color in the West, we don't get to see that content. We don't even get to see our own content in our own countries. And so oh, yeah. that's where it really started. And I felt like, wow, there needs to be a bridge, right? My first attempt at, at, at that bridge was as a producer because producers in the industry are the ones who project manage, they're the ones that raise the financing, you know, right. market and, and take the film to market, right? And so that's where I thought my skills were most transferable. And a, a director that I was like, you know, using as one of the subjects of my thesis in my master's program was like, you will be an excellent producer. And I was like, okay, explain to me exactly what a producer <laughs> what is. What is that? Yeah, you know, because, you know, you see all these credits and there's the line producer and field producer and EP and, you know, you see all these things and the layman doesn't really know the difference. So he had to explain that to me. And that's how I started producing was on his film, mm. right? Oh, wow. And so now fast forward to answer your question looking back is that I always had that innate feeling of, especially being an immigrant in the U.S., and having to explain myself so much or, you know, being dismissed 
and someone from a country that's not quite important. You know, you guys, you guys are on the beach somewhere swinging on trees. You know what I mean? Like all these stereotypes and perceptions that you live with and that translate into every aspect of our lives. And so when I And was... even what's depicted on TV and movies, right? Correct. Correct. Or not depicted at all, because right. like, you know, as a member of the Black diaspora, and I think every ethnic diaspora deals with this, where there's a dominant, even within the underrepresentation, then there are these token representatives of a whole diaspora, which right. comprises of so many different, you know, um, nuances and intersectionalities and subcultures, right? And so for us, it's the African-American archetype. So I don't even hear myself on screen. That person looks like me, but they don't sound like me. They didn't grow up like me. They seen snow. I never saw snow until I was 18, right? Like things like that, right? So when I started producing, I started doing independent um, projects of my own, but I also was working for production companies. I realized that there was definitely no appetite to tell stories and invest mm. at a certain level in filmmakers from, you know, backgrounds of color around the world, particularly outside the U.S. and even inside the U.S., there wasn't an understanding of why our stories would be viable commercially, why they were important to tell, even when they chose to tell them there was a lack of understanding of how they needed to be told so that they would remain authentic. And so between doing my own independent projects, struggling to raise financing for those projects, or even trying to get, you know, projects from filmmakers who would approach us to like get their films, you know, and, and TV series like Greenlit, these hoops that we had to run through the pains that we had to go through, I would say even abuses that we experienced in the industry, that was like where the experience came from that breathed into Soleil, you know, yeah. um, and realizing that it needed to be a systemic approach to it, that production alone couldn't solve it, um, and that we needed to create an ecosystem that was fairly independent of Hollywood, and we just started laying the foundations for those. Um, so in 2019 was when I decided to kind of make the leap to go from just being an independent project-by-project project producer mm -hmm. to building a production company. But then going through those rigors, we also realized that we needed to be more than a production company, that the people that really control the industry are the ones that control financing and distribution. And mm. so how do you kind of create that independent ecosystem? I love that, Mika. And so thanks for walking us through that. So you worked in marketing and big productions. Um, and then now you're working to build your own tech media company. And so I'm just wondering about the differences between how do you think about diversity and, you know, from different perspectives of storytelling. So, you know, telling stories and then also building a company and like, and, and, just any any thoughts on those on the differences between the two or or just your experiences in, in those different areas? I guess when I was in the corporate marketing world, you would have looked at the diversity more from a very personal point of view. Now, we were in a very I'll speak to the Nike experience specifically, right? Because that was the longest stint. Mm -hmm. 
and very foundational for me as a marketer, right? It was a very weird juxtaposition because here I am working on Nike basketball products where the athletes are black mm -hmm. primarily, yep. the consumers are primarily black, but I'm living in Oregon, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a black Trinidadian woman, young, living in Oregon, and most of my coworkers are white. Mm. So there was a strange dilemma that you were always grappling with. And because you're not sitting, you know, above everything, looking at it from a, a very long-term organizational development perspective, but you innately feel this, this conflict, right? And then you add the layer of my existence as not being American in a very American or Western, I should say. American and European dominated organization as well. Mm -hmm. And that's where most of the dollars even went from a marketing perspective or, or you know, merchandising and, and all of that. So the emerging markets, I ended up being very much representing a lot of the international regions, right? I always lean, I always ended up on the international side of the businesses. Mm -hmm. And so having to then have advocate for why Japan needed their own Air Jordan style that was worth investing in. Sure. Why Manu Ginobili from Argentina was uh, an athlete that we should be elevating at a certain level, right? With three championships at the time, you know? Like, why all these stories were just as rich and just as important and worth investing in, right? Mm -hmm. um, why the Jordan brand needed to dimensionalize and be, you know, global because growing up in Trinidad, I was up late at night watching him play. Mm -hmm. What was the story of me watching him play from a Caribbean perspective, right? So all of these things were very much from the lens of my role and what were the constraints, right? That were on my ability to bring my true experience, my true self to a world that actually at the end point were people just like me, but what was in the middle was like a lot of barriers. Mm -hmm. Then coming now to where we are now, I have the benefit of, because I'm, I am like empowered to build the organization, I could look at the inside out approach and all the dots have to connect. So from who we hire, if you look at my team, we look at like we look like an old Benetton commercial, you know? <laughs> and everybody's all over the world. And sometimes that means investing in people before they have a certain level of experience, but you see the potential. You know, they're bringing a certain cultural perspective that is really important to be represented. I love that. Then the filmmakers, right, that we work with and the platform that we're building. And the board, right, that we that we put together, sure. um, all of that then has to connect. And so I look at it very holistically. I look at it in terms of walking the talk, and it has to be inside out. Because if if it's not, it's going to affect the business at the end of the day, right? There's going to be that gap at some part of that that food chain, I guess, if you want to call it, right? Mm -hmm. um, that weak link is going to show, it's going to expose at some point or the other. So I'm trying to take the approach of making sure that our mission is reflected in every aspect, every layer, externally, internally, 
of the organization. And then that will emanate all through the business that we do. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the intentionality is so critical and we hear that often um, in the the work that Rob and I do as it pertains to diversity, equity, inclusion, and just aligning everything you do back to your organizational values and mission. Um, and so I really appreciate that. It, you had mentioned earlier, um, just as you were growing Solil and looking for maybe the funding, without it, it's down, it's, uh, you hinted to it being maybe not such a great experience. And without, without it being triggering for you, I'd, I'd love to understand how you raised money. Like, how did you approach, was it hard to sell your vision and the mission to investors you know, maybe in the North American um, or European markets. I'm just curious, like, what was that experience? Yeah, it 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 was, and it still is to some extent. You know, um, so like I mentioned, we started out as just doing production, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there were there were challenges on the production side of things, um, and now we're doing tech and digital media, right? Like we're much broader, and so. There's a, it's a different type of fundraising, right? Um, you know, the whole venture capital world. I just stumbled upon a, a Bloomberg, like two headlines back to back where they, you know, this was, I think, Wednesday's um, issue of Bloomberg where they had black founders get a third of what their counterparts get, right? Mm-hmm. From funding, right? Yep. Right. And then in terms of the in terms what, of the investment level, right? So it's, the if, actual investment, the level of yeah. investment that they get, yeah. yep. right? Or we we get, <laughs> and then within that, we have men, you have women, right? Mm-hmm. You have you know by you know, transgender and all of that. You have right. abilities. You have all of that. So black women within that is point three percent of total VC funding, yep. right? Yep. And so. To answer your question of how we raise money, it was a combination of just leveraging my the networks that I had, which were not in the film industry, mm-hmm. but who believed in me, right? Um, and believed that they understood. They knew that this was something that was not, I didn't just wake up and decide to do. They knew that even in a different realm, mm-hmm. that this was something I always advocated for. And they know my work ethic and they know my ethics, and, you know, all of that. And so that was how we were able to to raise our first money in actually came from, for, for the tech company, came from a group of very senior ex-Nike female executives mm-hmm. who saw the vision for the platform specifically and were like, hey, like, we need to be your first money in here, you know? Yeah. And that was great. That's awesome. And then there's yeah. a second group um, that is led by, uh, you know, a Caribbean, um, very prominent um, Black Caribbean person who, you know, is, is huge in the real estate world. Again, outside of film, right? But they saw that this was something that was important because from outsiders looking in, they knew that this is something they had not seen before, mm-hmm. right? But when it comes to the traditional VC type of um, institutional investors, it still is difficult and it's not just for me, you know, it's for everyone. And so what we did actually, even prior to raising money for the platform, when we were on the production side, 
whatever projects that we we were able to get revenue for, I just simply did not pay myself. Mm-hmm. And we reinvested, I would say, 90% of that into building out the rest of the company, bootstrapping, making a ton of sacrifices to basically get to where we are right now. So it's a combination of people who who, you know, know you, believing in you, just to give you that push and a combination of you believing in yourself and deciding, you know what, I have to, I have to just do what, not wait for that money to come, you know, right. and make those sacrifices and be as resourceful as possible with what we have. And sure. the sacrifice hasn't just been my sacrifice. The team has made sacrifices as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like some team members work on equity bases, a combination of compensation and equity. That is something that we've had to do just to kind of keep the train moving. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I was interested in your perspective on, you know, a couple of years ago, Netflix had the big hit with Squid Game. And, you know, the the narrative around that, so that, that show was created in South Korea, and the narrative was this is going to be the norm, right? So some of the streamers, so the show's, it would be just, you know, from everywhere would be distributed um, and, and get a lot of distribution from the streamers. Has that happened for shows from the global South? Has that, has that continued or has that been a struggle in the way that uh, it hasn't necessarily panned out the way that the folks thought it would? Yeah, not sustainably. And it's been very much of a cherry picking exercise. So Taking it from the filmmaker's perspective, you know, there's still a lot of filmmakers who do really great quality work going to the festival circuit. And this is research that we did before we started building the streaming platform that we're going to release in in a month, right? We were looking at, okay, festival is kind of the, you know, the benchmark, right? For quality, critical acclaim for the most part. So we looked at the top 20 film festivals Mm -hmm. globally. And we said, how many of the films that were programmed in these festivals? And the reason why we looked at the top 20 is because that's where the buyers go, right? Mm-hmm. Beyond that, most of the festivals aren't what they call market festivals where you could get your film sold, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Hardly, hardly any of them beyond sure. that top 20. So how many of the films that got programmed in that top 20 got any were from people of color? We first looked at the diversity of what was programmed. Now it's 30%. We were looking at this for a five-year period, mm-hmm. right? Then from that 30%, how many of those films got any distribution outside a festival? That was also 30%. That's 9%. Mm-hmm. All films that meet that benchmark of quality, high, high production value, etc. Wow. And won't get any distribution out of festival. So from then, a Netflix might come along and they're picking from the 9%, right? Of that 9%, they may have one or two from some key markets in the global south that they feel are hotspots, right? And they overinvest in those hotspots and that's how you get a squid game. Mm -hmm. But what happens to the 70% that never came through? And then what happens to the rest of that 9%? Okay, some of them might get some distribution, but then they get you offense. A big point that you made there is that they're not offered to the rest of the world, yeah. right? Because there's this kind of strange assumption that only Middle Eastern people will want to see a Middle Eastern film, 
Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's right. So, yeah. Right. We want to see a Jamaican film. So let's just offer this to Jamaica. And even in some cases, people from that region can't even see that film yeah. because they, they, they don't open it up to that particular region where this film oh, crosses over into from a storytelling perspective. So yeah. those films are not set up to succeed on those platforms. Oh. Then, okay, they make it on the platform. They might get like small licensing fees, you know, very, very limited windows. You can't find them. So you yeah. go on, right? The Squid Games or Shonda Rhimes' last film or, you know, yeah. a big, you know, Reese Witherspoon's next door. That comes to you, right? Mm-hmm. How Bridgerton, you find, right. Right. <laughs> How do you find those independent filmmakers who are fresh, authentic, edgy voices that will really push things forward or pushing culture forward, right? So look at all of the barriers. Yeah. And look at it numbers, right? And, you know, you're looking at, like, at least 2,000 films a year in that pipeline that don't really get seen globally. When you said, so, uh, yeah, when you said cherry picking, yeah. I thought there's an endless supply of crappy shows that are that are streamed to me, but I don't necessarily see those things that are quality, that are outside of uh, right. what, what... And even when they decide, okay, let's, let's invest in diversity, they say, okay... India has a big industry. Let's just like do a ton of Indian films because we think that's a big market. But what happened to Pakistan? What happened to Sri Lanka? Mm-hmm. Right? What right. happens to all these Southeast Bangladesh. and East, right? Bangladesh, right? Like, and that goes for every region. There's that kind of, here's a big market that we're going to develop in that region. And mm-hmm. everything else is kind of fighting for the scraps, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and you hear it from the filmmakers, but you also see it from the consumer side of things as well. For sure. so. Right. It just um, continues to stress the point that folks making decisions, there's bias that creeps in decision making. And then we think of algorithms, like how things are pushed to us too, right? Like I'll open my Netflix. It's completely different than when I go to my parents' house and their Netflix is, com- it's all Bollywood, <laughs> right? So- it's just so interesting to me how there's even bias just in that. And sorry, I'll just say this really quick. Sure. Even within, you use the example of Bollywood. Bollywood is not Indian, is not representative of Indian film. Mm. Bollywood is a region of Indian film, sure. right? right? So in India in particular, right? There's a whole other set of genres of of films that come out of India based on different regional and cultural influences. Right. That, that language, language, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Um, religion, right? Mm-hmm. Like all these things. And so there's a lot of backlash actually happening with Bollywood even now because some of these industries have been set up as replicas of Hollywood in those countries with the same kind of class structure, same kind of exclusion happening in different ways. So I, I should mention that as well. So Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so glad you did. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, Mika, um, you know, looking at your website, um, the podcast that you do, your short film Saturday series, we would be it would be crazy for us not to ask you what some of your favorite shows or recommendations for films from the global south that you feel are, are not to be missed. Do you have any recommendations for our audience? Where should we start? Give us like your top three. I would say there's a film called Rocks. That was done out of the UK. It's possible it's on Amazon. 
that really kind of showed the young Black British experience um, that I thought was amazing. In the UK as well, I would say, um, you know, the small act series um, mm -hmm. would be great to watch as well. Kind of getting away from, from that side of things. There are a lot of Turkish films that I think are excellent. There's there's a whole list I could probably provide you guys. And you, you yeah. know, you're putting but, it up. We'll, um, what we'll do is we'll add them to the show notes for yeah. sure. African film Atlantic is a film I think everybody should see. It was pretty groundbreaking. And then and then there are a lot of classic films like, you know, Yuzan Palsi, who's a Haitian filmmaker. She just got honored without, you know, an honorary Oscar. Um, Sugar Cane Ali, which was her first film, was really pivotal for Caribbean film. Mm. I think people should definitely look at those. And, well, you know, shameless plug here, yeah. but yep. on our streaming platform, which, you know, we're calling the world's first truly global community streaming platform. So it really challenges how we stream, how we discover all of the things that I just talked about um, to break those barriers down. Um watch a lot of those films <laughs> on this Hill Space streaming platform yes. because, because those are all films that haven't gotten any distribution globally but went through the festival circuits and are from um, some of the hottest emerging filmmakers across the global South diasporas all in one experience, right? Yeah. So look all for that from us um, and you'll be able to watch quite a bit of stuff that you would not see anywhere else. I, I have to totally That's agree excellent. with you. I, I, I was on your website and it's, it's a bit of a rabbit hole. You start wanting to watch about everything on that site and listen to the podcast yeah. as well because there's really some fascinating people that, that you also interview as guests on your podcast too. So um, I, yeah, I, well, I, I totally agree. <laughs> And we'll post a, we'll post a uh, some links to, to to your site as well, um, and then any any other recommendations that you have as well. So, yeah. Mika Cooper Edwards, we really enjoyed having you today and in this conversation. Such a great uh, opportunity to talk, uh, you know, the you. media and technology with you. And and please come back and see us uh, again. Yeah. It's been great having you. Well, definitely. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. I really <laughs> enjoyed. You. Speaking with like-minded people on this topic, this was really great. Yes, awesome. yes. Thank well, thank you so much. Thanks so um, much. We'll be right back with um, our Conv Reflections and Raves and Rants. Yeah.